First off, welcome to the podcast, uh, Paul Gorski. I really appreciate the opportunity to have you on. I have been kind of following your work for the past couple years. Uh, I was connected to you through a mutual friend, uh, Jamie Oot. He was kind of someone that told me I should kind of follow you, uh, share some of the information and stuff that you have. But to, in order for you to have the opportunity to introduce yourself to our listeners, it, can you tell us first a little bit about yourself and then how you found yourself in the equity social justice work realm? Wow, okay. Uh, so I uh, have most of my social justice work is really focused on educational justice issues. Uh, so how, how uh, racism and economic injustice and patriarchy and heterosexism and those sort of things, how they operate in schools and how they operate in society in ways that impact uh, schools. And uh, so I guess I, I would think of myself first as an activist because my first involvement was really in many ways doing kind of street activism and community education. Mm -hmm. and uh, and from there, I went into sort of into more of a more of a uh, sort of K twelve education uh, focus. Had a long career in higher ed, teaching in uh, social justice and human rights mm -hmm. programs, and I'm on my way out of higher ed now, uh, so I can focus on doing more work uh, directly with schools. Are you just finding that there's more work out there, more of a need for you to be doing that in more of a full-time realm? Uh, well, I, I think the need has really always been there. I, I don't know if there's more need right now. I think that um, that uh, I've been uh, I've been in, uh, feeling like I have a bigger impact when I work directly with schools and school districts. Mm -hmm. it, uh, uh, and, and also the flexibility of doing that uh, is mm -hmm. going to create some time for this other project where I'm uh, setting up a nonprofit that will work with uh, activists and activist communities on coping with burnout and uh, oh, and great <laughs> sustaining social movements that sort of thing. Yeah, the, I think that's something, especially with the acuteness of the problem right now. We. On the podcast here, we talk about self-care quite a bit just because uh, the tendency to burn out <laughs> is so acute um, yeah. and balancing, you know, trying to create justice in the world while also not just feeling completely juiced at the end of uh, the week is, uh, is <laughs> really difficult. So Absolutely. I'm really glad to hear you doing that. Yeah, and you know, one of the things I, I've been doing these studies where uh, interviewing activists who have experienced burnout. Uh, most recently, I uh, interviewed 30 racial justice activists in the U.S. who have experienced burnout. And what what I found most interesting is that a big percentage of the burnout actually comes from things that really self care isn't going to cure. So, right. for instance, a lot of the burnout comes from uh, the ways activists treat one another mm -hmm. and so if we don't so I think of it more as the need for like community care and how can we as activists commit to 
creating cultures within social movements mm -hmm. uh, that that uh, that will sustain the movements instead of actually contributing to, to people's burnout. So I always think it's like self-care plus community care uh, equals sustained movements. What are you finding um, activists kind of like do to one another that make it so difficult or problematic? Well, there, there's a number of different sets of issues, but one set of issues is a lot of, uh, I think a lot of people go into social movements thinking that in part that those movements are going to provide a space where people are safe from all of the oppression that they're experiencing outside of the movement. And of course, the truth is all of the oppressions are reproduced within movements. Mm -hmm. So uh, like interviewing racial justice activists of color, uh, for many of them, their number one source of burnout was the way that they're treated by white racial justice activists. Mm -hmm. So, so that's a piece of it, and then there's just this piece about sort of the policing and judgmentalism, like policing yeah. people's social justice purity, right? And, and and the sort of judgmentalism that that is kind of wrapped up in that, and and then people who work for activist organizations or nonprofits uh, often are really very. Uh, taken advantage of by the by those organizations underpaid yeah. overworked. Uh, so there's a lot of different dynamics going on yeah yeah definitely I can see that what's one of the things we talk about on the podcast a certain amount is giving people space to make mistakes but then also having the personal responsibility to get better and really deeply apologize and attempt to atone I guess when you make a mistake because the work is it's so mistake ridden um and it's so hard to completely undo yourself from the thinking that created the structures um, yeah uh, that we that's... have to find a way to have some forgiveness but also some self you know do yourself work in the process yeah yeah so forgiveness and accountability that's like there's a sweet spot in there somewhere <laughs> yeah but it's super hard to find and it's definitely difficult to talk about and sometimes, it's, sometimes what I've seen is that it's not even just about people messing up. It's about people having just different frameworks and approaches mm -hmm. and being judgmental of anyone who has a different framework or right. approach. And uh, I don't know. I was raised in this activist culture, which was really about having the social justice radar on all the time and mm -hmm. just waiting for somebody to use the wrong word and then lay into them. Yeah, uh, that, you know, just that sort of hypercritical finger wagging uh, sort of thing, and and I like it's when I work with my students, what I try to help them think about is we want to maintain that critical lens. We want the critical lens, mm -hmm. but uh, the critical lens should also be about. It's not just about putting everyone else's ideas kind of through the ringer. It's about putting our own ideas and perceptions and the ways that we cling onto language and frameworks and putting that through the ringer uh, too. And, you know, and hopefully we all come out a little bit more humble and more powerful. Yeah. When you look at uh, yourself first, <laughs> usually you'll find there's plenty of mistakes that you're making anyway. So uh, if we all looked at ourselves first and then also kind of shared, I think those failures were more public with 
the fact that we're not perfect. I think it'd make a big difference. And that idea kind of moves me on to the next thing that uh, you've had a lot to say about, and I'm really uh, interested to hear uh, your thoughts and have my listeners hear your thoughts about it. Tell us about your thoughts on um, the ideas of grit and growth mindset and the the problematics contained therein. Yeah, well, you know, I, the, the ideas in some ways aren't new. For instance, grit is just sort of a rehashing of the bootstraps mentality and, you know, culture of poverty uh, and that sort of thing. And especially thinking about how this stuff operates in schools, whether we're talking about K-12 or higher ed, mm-hmm. that it seems, it seems like there's like this desperation for people who have power in these institutions to look for ways to create the illusion that they're responding to inequity and injustice uh, and, and, to, and to do that in ways that just reproduce the inequity and the injustice. So mm-hmm. things like uh, the culture of poverty, things like, you know, any of these approaches that are really about identifying the source of inequities or disparities as existing within marginalized communities as opposed to sort of being pressed upon marginalized Mm -hmm. communities. So anytime, and so this is what, you know, when I think about growth mindset or grit, when I think about these these approaches that are really about, we have to fix the mindsets of uh, racially or economically marginalized people, or we have to help people be more gritty or resilient against racism rather yeah. addressing racism uh, and, and again there's there's a whole history of these sorts of things but but they're so uh, these grid and growth mindset and all of that they're so compelling to especially privileged identity people because it allows us to kind of dance around any real conversation about racism mm-hmm. and uh, so I think they're really dangerous I, I, I think these these ideas as sort of pass, as being about equity when they're really a way of just rearranging inequity i think those are actually more dangerous than just explicit obvious inequity yeah so so i'm on kind of a uh on a bit of a mission to to take all that stuff on yeah i've seen recently that if uh, even carol dweck the person that kind of came up with the whole growth mindset thing is starting to own the the problematics um, of you know her thought process. Have you heard anything about her kind of retaking a look at that? Yeah, definitely. And, and I actually give her credit because she has come out and written a couple of things and basically, you know, said that the ways that people are implementing this are not the ways you know I intended to implement them. Mm-hmm. And, and and she's also said that growth mindset should not be used as a equity or social justice strategy mm-hmm. that it's not an equity it doesn't replace addressing underlying inequities barriers challenges and uh you know I, and I, I give her credit for that i still think you know there's this bigger issue that uh you know people develop these kind of marketable ideas and they sound compelling and often they sound compelling because they avoid a direct confrontation with injustice. Right. uh, You know, and now that, you know, some huge percentage of schools and school districts are using that model, 
you know, for her to come out now and say, well, now that I've made all this money on this, now I'm going to say, hey, maybe there's something I need to look at again here. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but I still give her credit because what a lot of people would do, you know, people like Ruby Payne or people, you know, they develop these oppressive approaches. Doesn't matter how many people show them how oppressive they are. They just, they're dismissive of any critique. So I give her credit for at least uh, uh, being willing to adjust her uh, thinking. Yeah, and I think it's sometimes it's those ideas being birthed almost in a framework of whiteness that makes it so dangerous, you know, because it doesn't look at ahead of time how could this be misused and how could, um, you know, how could this be bent towards oppression, you know? Um, it's definitely a, a problematic of the, the birth of the thought. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the same thing about grit, and it's the same thing about culture of poverty, it's the same thing about, you know, I can remember when the obsession was learning styles, it's the yeah. same thing, it's, it's all just that same sort of, it's, uh, it's like, uh, it's a very sort of white entitlement way to, to address inequity or injustice, to, to try to address disparities in a way that are going to be no threat to uh, white dominance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and if you take any one of these out, you know, growth mindset or whatever, you say, well, okay, this is someone maybe who had good intentions. But at some point when you see the pattern, you can no longer say that's good intentions. It just looks like a purposeful evasion yeah. you know, of, of any kind of real conversation. Well, and um, later on, I'm going to talk a little bit more about how you really try to change systemic ism. But before we get to that question, I know it would be valuable for my listeners to hear from you. How do you feel like it would be best or what best way do you think we could try to connect with, you know, encourage, uh, motivate uh, people from historically marginalized groups? Like what are other ways we could connect or... Uh, try to find ways to help them navigate systemic ism if you can't change it personally. Right. Well, I think so. I think there's a distinction between something like Carol Dweck, uh, economically privileged white professor, coming up with this idea of growth mindset uh, outside, you know, without anything wrapped or any kind of systemic analysis of racial or economic injustice wrapped around it. Uh, you know, there are people like Gloria Latza Billings, uh, Lisa Delpit, uh, um, people of color who are also writing about uh, uh, education and uh, writing from a sort of a justice perspective who, who talk about the need to work with, for instance, African-American uh, youth to help them learn how to navigate a racist system. Mm -hmm. So of course that, to me, that makes perfect sense. The problem is that's not what these other frameworks are about. These other frameworks are about ignoring the racist system and, and then within the context of a racist system, trying to fix the mindsets or cultures or values of the targets of the racism. Uh, you know, in that context, 
really, to me, the only thing that at least privileged identity, white people can do uh, in the sense of uh, supporting educational achievement or engagement or whatever for students of color, the thing that we ought to be doing is working extensively on eliminating the racism from these systems. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it's the role uh, for me as a white person to sit down. I mean, maybe in some extent, to some extent it is, but uh, I don't think that I should presume that those conversations aren't already happening in communities of color, uh, helping, helping youth of color navigate a system. And I don't know that I would see the things in the system uh, to be able to provide uh, as useful sort of feedback around that. I think my role is to use the, the power that I have to eliminate uh, the racism, you know, to any extent I can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that I noticed that you do that I really appreciate a lot is changing language to put the onus back on the system that's reproducing the pattern. I, my background's in communications and I've always been hugely interested in the idea of semiotics, like how does language connect with other thoughts and ideas to create meaning? And you and your reframing of language, like uh, saying, uh, you know, the student didn't drop out, they were pushed out or, um, that there's not an achievement gap. Truly, the thing you're dealing with is there's an opportunity gap. How do you try to use that idea of reframing language or changing language to really show what the system's doing to historically marginalized groups? Yeah, what I want to see to me, the, the, the issue isn't so much the words themselves. The, the issue is sort of the value that, that we put on the words. And so, to me, it's about do I have the tools to, to interpret what's happening in a way that puts me in the best position to advocate for equity and justice. So, for instance, what I, you know, when I was teaching at George Mason University and I taught the social justice education course, if I heard my students start talking about, you know, the dropouts, you know, the dropout problem, I would say, okay, let's start this conversation over, but think about it as push out instead of drop out and just see how it shifts the way, you know, how we're defining what the problem is. Mm -hmm. And that I think is the key issue is uh, how are we defining or the language we're using, how is it defining what the problem is that we're trying to solve? If we, if we, if we define that problem incorrectly, we have no shot at solving it. So if we're looking only at, uh, another example I use is generational poverty. Mm -hmm. uh, when people think of that, I think for most people, what they're thinking about is, well, the reason people are poor is because low-income communities pass on a broken culture from generation to generation. Okay. If, I def if that's what, how I'm defining what the problem is, the only solutions I could imagine for that problem are gonna be about fixing marginalized people rather than fixing the conditions that marginalize people. Mm -hmm. But if, so I say, okay, instead of talking about generational poverty, let's talk about generational injustice. Let's talk about what happens when communities face generation after generation of oppression and injustice. And if we define that as the problem, then we realize, well, I can't fix that by making that community more resilient. 
Uh, I can't fix that by changing the mindset in that community. I can only fix that by eliminating the injustice. So now I have the proper interpretation and I can actually come up with uh, solutions that are, are going to be a threat to the problem that I'm identifying. So to me, the language is really about being more thoughtful about how, uh, how we're interpreting what the problem is so that we can come up with transformative solutions uh, for, the, for the problem. So, um, really fascinating stuff. So I have kind of an interesting question to ask you because I'm really interested to hear your thoughts. Um, I wish more schools and school districts would frame diversity as a highlighted that, um, hey, come to this school, it's diverse. Uh, the, the fact that it's diverse and many different people are here are going to help everyone in the same space. You know, the fact that um, we'll see from things from different spaces, we have different experiences. Um, and in my own attempts to try to explain kind of like what's going on uh, or how these things help. And it's hard because I'm a, my primary ethnic identity is indigenous, but I didn't really grow up on uh, reservation culture. And so um, I was kind of more raised in whiteness, so I can adopt some of those things unknowingly. <clears throat> but one of the things I try to sh talk about is when you look at like um, fragility and resilience, you know, the fact that, I mean, you don't want to pat someone on the head and say like, it's so good that you've been able to survive all this ism for the, your entire life. Um, but I do feel like there's something that they can share about the tough reality of the world with folks that do experience fragility. What are your thoughts around the ideas of like resilience, fragility, people being in the same spaces and understanding the values of this idea or that? Uh, well, there's, you know, there's actually even a lot of research that shows that, uh, that schools and also universities, that, uh, that student body diversity contributes to everybody's learning. So, so I, I totally agree with that. I, I think that, um, well, one, you make a really important point about resiliency because often these resiliency programs are about looking at, say, let's say looking at uh, uh, students who are experiencing poverty and helping mm -hmm. them become more resilient when really they're the most resilient people in the room already. Right. You can exactly. see the backward thinking that happens there. Uh, but certainly having, um, you know, I think that having kids who have never experienced uh, economic uh, marginalization in classrooms with kids who have uh, you know, I think can be certainly a value. Uh, I, I do think we have to be careful that it's not the responsibility of students of color to make themselves vulnerable so, you know, white students can learn about diversity. Right. Uh, but in a context in which the school and, and a school is in many different ways uh, trying to create more racial justice, uh, racial equity, working on those sorts of things. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, in the course of, of uh, that movement, it can, be, uh, it, it can be quite valuable. The problem I have is that a lot of schools 
you know, they sort of put all of their equity focus into these kind of celebrating diversity activities. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so you have kids who are experiencing racism in the school and who are being sort of cajoled into participating in these celebrations of diversity while nobody is attending to the racism that they're experiencing in the school. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to work on that. I think the other thing, the uh, sort of intergroup exchange and how they can learn from one another, you know, I think that could be valuable, but I think it can also be exploitive if that's all we're doing. We're not actually addressing the racism. We're just helping the white kids learn from the kids of color about racism. Right. So um, with you and your work, and of course, you know, you don't have to give away the the secret recipe by any means, but... Um, I was curious to hear more about how you attempt to get an institution that really isn't built for certain folks to succeed, to really look at how it's built and how they need to systematically change and reform almost everything they do and everything they think in order to create true spaces of uh, opportunity or um, to really rethink what they're doing. How do you, how do you first get them to like be like, oh, okay, uh, yeah, I do now understand my school wasn't built for, you know, these kids, uh, and then how do you help them to truly start making systemic changes to create more opportunity? Yeah, that's a great question. I, one of the things I do is I sort of uh, a lot of I think a lot of the approach for people who do the kind of work that I do is you start out with something that's kind of consumable to the most privileged people in the room. So maybe you start out with cultural competence or you start out with celebrating diversity and then you sort of step, you know, over time, you kind of step toward something more structural and more institutional. And I always thought that that was backward, this kind of, uh, you have to meet people where they are and step them carefully because to me that approach actually prioritizes the comfort of the people with the most privilege over the commitment to actually create some movement. So what you just said, you know, I start with that. Mm -hmm. I say, here's, here's the reality. That this institution of education really was never created uh, uh, in order to, uh, to be equitable or just. And despite how, uh, how, you know, how good intentions you think you have as individuals and as institutions, you know, we're all participating in this and maintaining this system that is kind of recycling racism and transphobia and sexism, whatever, uh, for hell. So, so I start there. Uh, and uh, instead of sort of meeting people where they are, I sort of start where we need to go. And then the idea is to sort of bridge people there. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I sort of come at it with kind of a sense of urgency. I, uh, I give people conceptual tools because I think one of the biggest problems, you know, one big problem is that there are people who just choose not to see the injustice and the inequity. Yeah. There are people who I think would be responsive to it. They just, they just don't see it or they've never learned how to see it or mm -hmm. they 
built themselves all kinds of detours around it. So a lot of what I work with uh, work with them on is just learning to recognize the scope of the problem. And so I sort of build people's sense of urgency out of seeing the scope, mm -hmm. uh, seeing that that uh, that sort of scope. Uh, a lot of my colleagues who do this work, I think, are kind of a little bit scared of that approach because they think what ends up happening is that, uh, that a lot of people just tune out immediately because it seems too big and seems too hard. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't find that, really. I, I find that people are sort of compelled, you know, they're sort of compelled by it. As long as I'm not going in there wagging my finger, you mm -hmm. know, because we're all tripping over ourselves. Uh, I find that actually to be a pretty effective piece. So I will go in and say, I know what you all want are 10 strategies to create everything equitable. And I say, you know, I'm going to tell you right now, there are no 10 strategies. Really, this is about ideological shifts, shifts in policy and practice based on new ideological understandings. So that's, that's my whole approach. Uh, and I probably don't get invited to a lot of places because what they want is for me to come in and say, you know, here's how to teach African-American people and here's how to teach low income people. And, and you know, and I sort of reject that. But, mm -hmm. but so. what are um, some big successes or are, are there any like some like as far as you working with a space or place? Not that you have to name them or you can or not. Um, that you've had in working with like uh, someone to really create a significant shift? Well, uh, several different I, several different examples are coming to my mind, but um, I'll just mention two of them. Uh, one of them is uh, in a part of the US that is very white and very Christian. And I've been working, uh, my organization has been working with kind of a regional service center that does professional development for uh, schools all over that region and districts all over that region. And uh, being able to go into that context and, uh, and, uh, and uh, sort of draw people into the conversation. And, and I, I can tell when a difference is being made because I can hear people's language start to shift, mm -hmm. start to shift from diversity to, you know, just starting to hear them say, OK, which of our kids are marginalized, you know, using language like that, mm -hmm. uh, them actually telling me, you know, getting, you know, a big hurdle for a lot of uh, people is that this work isn't programmatic. It's not like, well, we'll just have some student dialogues. It's really about policy and it's about seeing school policy in the context of bigger social policy. So when I'm seeing people engaged in those kinds of conversations, uh, I know that uh, progress is being made. And in this one region, there are places that have actually overhauled their, their uh, policy that have started doing like ongoing professional development using this equity literacy uh, framework. So that's one thing that, that comes to mind. Another is a district, I, you know, even harder than those kinds of schools or districts, I think it's really hard to go into schools where there are a lot of, for lack of a better way to say it, a lot of white liberal people mm -hmm. who imagine themselves as already all over the diversity thing. 
Yeah. But going into a place like like that, and I'm thinking of a school district I've been working with for a couple of years, uh, and again, just seeing the conversation change. And, and when I could see the conversation change and the ways that people are even thinking about the issue change, that's what I really want to see because then I know that they're developing a lens and they can apply that lens to everything. It's not just like here are five strategies for the curriculum, but we're going to leave everything else unjust. It's like I, I could see them use what we're talking about and apply it to something else. And, and, uh, and going into a sort of a white liberal place where there's a lot of defensiveness mm. at first and a lot of, you know, we already get this and you're preaching to the choir. That's what I hear in those spaces. Yeah. Uh, and then to, to kind of see the shift over time toward, uh, oh, okay, here are the things that were, you know, that, that here's the damage we're doing under the guise of white liberalism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so those are the two cases that sort of come to mind. But I see, I see the whole framework change and I see them start to talk about policy and practice that has to change, not just little classroom things or, you know, fixing kids, but about sort of bigger, more substantive uh, things. Um, so you bring me to a great pivot point for my next question. Um, so you are a white person doing this work. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, your history as far as being a right, white ally? Um, if you can talk about what are your responsibilities in being a white ally? And then what kind of rights do you have as a white ally? Oh my goodness. Uh, I never thought about rights. Uh, well, you do get some. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think my uh, I think my primary responsibility is to uh, refuse in any way to fluff up or soften the conversation. Uh, my responsibility is to to be as transformative and radical uh, as I can, and uh, and not uh, fluff up the conversation. And to uh, to you know to make myself uh, vulnerable uh, for the work that I'm going to do. I, I think one of the most frustrating things that I see a lot of white people who do this work do, especially if they sort of see it as a career more than as like a form of activism, mm -hmm. is you know that you know is this willingness to kind of trade the integrity of what they're doing for work. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, I think my number one responsibility is to never, to never do that. I think I, I also have a responsibility to, uh, to, to name certain truths that, that are really important. So for instance, one thing that I always name if I'm going in and doing a workshop at a school is to uh, say that, you know, that I know that there are probably people of color in this school who have been saying the exact same things I'm about to say, that mm -hmm. this knowledge exists here already. And the fact that that you've needed to bring me in is actually a symptom of a bigger set of problems that, that we have to address. So acknowledging that sort of thing, uh, I think is also uh, really important. With the, I know the rights when you're kind of like, <laughs> It's t tough, right? Um, and part of the reason I asked you the question too is because um, in our work, I don't know that we've always been that great at, you know, as a 
person from a marginalized background. Like, I don't know that we've always done the best job of, uh, I don't know, taking care of or recognizing that, yes, white allies do have rights too. And you get, you can get stuck in some pretty difficult situations, right? Like, um, you could be doing uh, work with a district and then you see a, uh, you know, a person of color uh, start reproducing whiteness and then you know can say well you know as a black person I can say these things right and then you have no right to call them out because you're white right but I do think you know you in that space you kind of have a responsibility to be like look I'm kind of concerned that maybe you're reproducing whiteness uh, even though you are a person of color like so I mean that might be like a weird example of a, like a right like because you kind of have the responsibility too um, yeah. The other thing uh, I would say too is right. You have the the right to make mistakes because you're going to make mistakes, right? So when I say rights, I think like there's there's also certain things or certain understandings that has to kind of come with the role. I guess that's why I asked the question. Yeah, I, I can I can see it that way. Like the example of a person of color reproducing whiteness. I feel like, you know, there are dynamics there and I probably wouldn't feel like I could, I would be very careful about naming that in front of the, in front of a group that has white people in it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think maybe what I would do is go to that person individually and, and initiate a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I could see, you know, and, and, I, you know, I have to be honest, I've never felt like I didn't have, in, in those contexts, I've never felt like I, I didn't have the space to, to make a mistake. Mm -hmm. but, but I also think that, you know, I go into a lot of spaces where, um, you know, where there are a lot of people of color and, and, and rightfully, I think there's always this period of suspicion uh, out it and they're oh who is this white guy is gonna come yeah. in and uh, and I think part of that comes from you know the parade of white people who who uh, do this kind of work who, who you know are doing sort of celebrating diversity or cultural competence or the fluffiest versions of it you know so I feel like you know part of my responsibility also is to recognize where some of that initial resistance or lack of trust comes from. And I have to earn the trust in that space. Every time I do this work, I feel, I feel a responsibility to earn that trust. And the way that I do that is by, you know, telling the truth and naming things that are hard for white people to mm -hmm. hear and never filing that integrity down. And, and that's also why I have this approach where I think I just need to name things I, and, uh, and where I need to not be hung up on, you know, how, if, if it's going to turn off white people for me to, to tell the truth. And so uh, I think generally, because I do that, I'm, I'm able to earn people's trust and that creates the space to make a mistake. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. So, um, Last question, well, second to last question. It's a little bit of a deeper one. So um, I feel like people that really do this work, especially in the activist framework, there's some type of deep personal itch that there's some type of um, unsatisfied need in your own life that makes you go out and work this hard and go to these spaces 
like over and over again, right? There's some maybe some healing that happens in that you do something this difficult uh, over and over again. What do you feel like that unmet need or that draw uh, that personally pulls you into this work to the level of being an activist? Part of it, I think, is just I have like ever since I was a kid, I had a very sort of active, pretty hard, you know, my dominant uh, trait is is empathy. And so I tend to kind of soak in the suffering around me. That doesn't mean that I can experience what all the different kinds of suffering feel like. But when I see suffering, I kind of ingest it. And uh, and this is my outlet for it. I, I don't know what I, 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 you know, I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I wasn't, uh, if I didn't have this kind of outlet for it. Uh, and, you know, and I've always said when I look at it that way, because, you know, I don't want people to heroicize me and I, I people doing that sometimes. And, and even especially because I'm white, it's like, well, you could choose not to do this. And I'm like, no, I could not choose, you know, in a way I, I can't choose not to do this. And when I look at it that way, I'm not thinking that I'm some sort of martyr or hero. I, I'm actually in a way think that it's quite selfish that, uh, you know, and I, and I, and I often think, you know, if I wasn't getting that, you know, getting that sort of nurturing out of doing the work, would I be doing it? Would mm -hmm. I do it just because it's the right thing to do or, you know, how much of it is that I'm doing it because, uh, you know, because it is nurturing something in me. Uh, you know, and sometimes I think, well, either way, I'm doing it, and that's the important thing. But I, but I also think that that's an important, you know, important thing for me to, you know, to 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 grapple with. Mm -hmm. Well, this this next question will be probably even harder than to answer, given your framework of thinking. So, um, I really feel like when you embark on a life of trying to really create true justice for other people where you start holding yourself accountable for the ways you think or the ways that you talk or when you choose to engage and when you choose not to that there's something about living this activist life that there's something about trying to create true justice that deeply internally makes you a better person that i think uh, it's a form of personal leadership i think um you know, it's really easy to get focused on everybody else, but I do think that there's something that happens to us that makes us better too. It, can you speak to any way that you feel like you've become a better or more whole person through this work? I think pretty much every every way that I've become a better or more whole person has been through this work. Uh, and I, I'm not necessarily saying that as a, as a good thing. That also kind of speaks to burnout where I've kind of wrapped everything about my life uh, in this in this work, so it's like it's you know it's my spirituality, it's my religion in, in essence. But I think uh, this work has uh, definitely made me a more honest person, uh, and it's made me a more uh, I want to say it's made me a more kind of spiritual person because you know I've never before I started doing this work in my early, late teens, early 20s, I never really connected with religion or faith or spirituality, but uh, sort of being in a community of people who have the connection of doing this work, you know, it's, you know, it's made me a lot more insightful 
about uh, matters of the spirit, uh, matters of the soul. I don't, I don't really mean in a formal religious sense, but I just mean in a human connection uh, sense. Yeah. Uh, it's been really important for me because naturally I'm a very introverted person and it would be easy for me if I didn't have these commitments to kind of hide away, <laughs> yeah. you know, not develop very deep relationships. But it's impossible to do this work without deep relationships. And so, yeah, I, I really connect a lot with what you're saying as far as, you know, when you're taking on something as big as this, there is, a, I guess, a need for a connectedness to a bigger thing than you, a bigger us than me. I don't know that it's necessarily, I mean, not that everyone has to have a spiritual or religious view to do it, but um, when you feel like an unction or saw like a pull from something that's bigger than you, uh, I think it almost like supercharges you to do the work in a better framework. Because uh, whether you're religious or not, I don't think, you know, really we're all that different, sadly, when you get right down to it. Uh, the problem is, is, you know, I don't treat you as good as I treat me, or sometimes, you know, I treat you as bad as I do treat myself. Um, and uh, when you eliminate that us, that you, me, and create like us, we spaces, there's something kind of dynamic that happens in those spaces uh, that I've found that is um, kind of undeniable, at least in my own personal experience. Yeah, and it's so interesting to think about that in relation to what I was saying about these uh, about these studies about activist burnout and how burnout is linked to how activists treat one another. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes these spaces also have the potential to have, you know, be deeply meaningful and, and powerful. And that is what, you know, makes it that much more devastating when somebody enters that space thinking that's what they're walking into. Mm -hmm. and, and what they realize is they're walking into a, split, a space in which all the things they're dealing with outside of that space are being reproduced within the space. Yeah. I just really, first off, just deeply appreciate you for taking the time uh, and the just sitting down and kind of t taking almost like an hour to talk and share with us. Um, with that is, uh, are you willing to kind of share how folks could get a hold of you if they want to talk to you more or maybe bringing you in to do some work? Uh, sure, absolutely. Uh, they can uh, look up the Equity Literacy Institute uh, webpage. That's probably the easiest way to email me and just uh, email me from that uh, webpage or they could just Google my name and uh, and find uh, find an email address uh, that way. Yeah. Well, again, thank you so much for being on here. And I do really appreciate uh, all the work that you do and all the spaces that you do it. Um, it's funny because uh, people that do this work sometimes can feel like they're competitive which blows my mind because there's so much work to do. I oh, never yeah. would think there was a need to compete um, given that the need is so acute everywhere. Um, but the fact that you're just willing to talk and share and tell us a little bit more about your life and what you've learned and how you kind of come at stuff, I think uh, has created the opportunity for uh, not just me, but my listeners to um, see and feel and think a little bit differently and then hopefully become a little bit better from the conversation. So just deeply, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. I've enjoyed it. All right. Well, with that, Paul, that'll conclude kind of the interview portion of everything. Uh, again, thanks a lot for uh, being here and for taking the time uh, to talk to me and the audience. I just really appreciate it. When 
<laughs> Sarah heard back from you. She was so excited, um, you know, just because you have some uh, great thoughts and, you know, we're just in that type of community. And when we see someone that's doing good work that can potentially make you or us better, that we're just happy to have the opportunity for the conversation. So uh, just a deep bow and thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. I've enjoyed it. All right. Well, you have a great day and um, hopefully our paths will somehow bump again in the future. That sounds great.